1: I'm best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time.
0: And if you were listening last week to episode 300, we mentioned that we tend to we tend to record two episodes at a time when we record, and this is the episode that we recorded right after that episode. And in the chit chat for that episode, we were talking about the new kitten, and in between the time. When we finished episode 300 and started episode 301, when I left my desk to go get a cup of coffee, Taylor got a box or a package. So Taylor, what was in the package?
1: I was so excited. I was like, Steve, I have to open this package before before we start recording again. He's like, okay. Like, I'm a little bit weird. Um, But what it was is um, when I... So the little guy is out of quarantine now. Right. And I can let him run around the house. But I cannot actually just do that and not worry about him because he's so tiny. He just like disappears and he slinks and and then he's just gone and he can fit into the tiniest places. So I need to have something on him that's like I can put a bell on. I think you can actually hear, hear him, him crying yes, in the bathroom. Him. Yeah, he's in the bathroom
0: right now because he's in jail. He you put him out. back in jail. He's
1: in jail. Yes, I can't just I can't just let him wander around because I don't know where he's going to end up. And and if he hides somewhere and doesn't come, then you know I, I can't, he's just gone. And so I wanted to put a collar on him so I could bell him, but they don't really make collars for kittens. At least you know none of the pet stores or you know pet supply places have them. And I. When I very first got my dog, she's a tiny, tiny little dog. So when she was a puppy, she was so small. The place that I got her from, they they sent her with this little sort of harness type collar, but very thin. Like if you you look at harness vests or whatever, they are these big bulky things, these big clasps on them. And I tried getting one of those and I put it on him and he basically just flopped over. And not the way that some cats do, like they think you've put them in a straitjacket. It was just too heavy for him. <laughs> he threw him off balance. And so I was looking everywhere to see if I could find that little harness collar that my dog originally had all those years ago, because she grew out of it so fast, but I held on to it. And then when my kid got her little eight-week-old kitten, well, when the, her kitten showed up, um I used that and I put that on her so that, um, and and put a little bell on it. And so when this little guy showed up, I was like, Oh, I'll just use that again. But I, I don't know, maybe I threw it out in the move or something. And so I couldn't find it. So it's like, all right, I'll just go online and order another one. I I couldn't find it anywhere. Like it took me days of searching and typing in different keywords to try and find this harness that i knew existed because i had one and i'm kicking myself for not knowing where it is and then i i found it i just randomly found it and so i ordered it and it just showed up now and i'm so excited because i can put it on him and i can put a bell on him and he can go run and play throughout the house and i don't have to worry about where he is in the end all done
0: yay but not until after we finish recording otherwise he'll be (laughs) sitting in your lap purring and ringing his bell (laughs)
1: Actually, I, I worked today with him in my lap and it was funny because uh, he's very demanding and he'll sleep on my chest while I'm working and then pick his head up and complain at me that I'm not petting him while he's laying there. And I'll touch him and he'll go back to sleep and I'll keep working. And he picks his head up and complains. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, am I setting myself up for trouble in the future? I don't know. But anyway, I was very excited. To, I wanted to make sure that that, that harness thing was in there because I've been waiting for it, and I'm so excited.
0: All right, so we do actually have a topic, a writing topic for today's show. We're going to be talking about building a villain from scratch, but I thought as a way of, of kicking it off, I would ask you, Taylor, if you had a favorite movie villain of all time or literary villain. Loki (laughs) (laughs) you're consistent I'll give you that
1: (laughs) he wasn't he's not really a villain villain but I think that's why I like him so much because he's a villain but he's so much fun (laughs) he's not an evil villain or he is an evil villain but funny at the same time I don't know Loki Loki's my favorite villain
0: all right, do you know who the American Film Institute in 2003, so this, this, this is a, we have to go a ways back for this, but they put together a list of 100 greatest heroes and 100 greatest villains. Can you imagine, or can you think of who the, the number one villain is? I would have gotten this right.
1: No, I cannot.
0: I would not have gotten number two right. Number two was Norman Bates from the movie Psycho. Okay. Number one was Hannibal Lecter. And that may have been, I mean, the, that was 1991 when that movie came out. And that was when you were, you know, not with the rest of us. And no, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't been born yet. <laughs> you hadn't been born. But I have to, Wait a minute.
1: Well, I say, I say born in finger quotes. Okay. Like I hadn't been born yet because I hadn't entered the world yet. Okay. I yes. was still in the. Boom of the cult, but I uh, I have seen the movie Silence of the Lambs, even though I didn't see it back then.
0: I saw it when it came out. I was on a business trip and went to see it with a colleague, and it was it was very impactful. <laughs> I'll say that, and I'd read the book, uh, but it was still like really impactful. What a great villain! But if you're if you're going to create a villain from scratch, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Where do we start?
1: Well, first of all, don't come to me looking for a villain like Hannibal Lecter because I'm not able to give that awesome of advice. I'm, I don't think I would be able to come up with a villain that good. So, you know, just let's lower the expectations here a little bit, guys. Um, <laughs> this question actually came from the Facebook group and it was submitted by Anna, who um, is longtime listener. Long-time participant in the group, and also has done a lot of work on the audio project, which is still ongoing. So when and if we get to the end of that, um, you know, Anna Anna is one of those who deserves a lot of thanks. And I also just want to put in a plug here that I think we're down to just a handful of people working. We've only got like, uh, maybe 80 episodes left to go. So if you have a little bit of time on your hands and you're willing to be part of that project to help us get these podcasts, these episodes broken down into uh, like specific topics that can be transcribed and put into a database and searchable, then I would love you forever and appreciate it. And please just contact me and let me know and I'll get you in contact with Brian who's the one who's been managing the project for us all. Um, yeah, okay, so that little side note over. this uh, and you can contact me by email at contact at taylorstevensbooks.com or in the Facebook group and, and I'll get back on Patreon and I'll get back to you right away as soon as I can. Um, so anyway, this comment was uh, submitted by Anna and it says this: "I would like to know how to make bad guys scary bad. I know one of the ways is to show them in a little vignette doing something horrible, but I think it's often cheap and trivial. I am thinking of slowly revealing who they are or how they can be deceptive, insinuating themselves into other people's lives, how something can feel off about them. How do you build an atmosphere of suspense, of threat, of being unpredictable? Every now and then, I'll read a book where the point of view shifts to the antagonist without revealing who that person is. This is not quite what I'm after, but what do you think of doing doing it that way? Is it clever or confusing? Basically, how do you build a bad guy from scratch? So I know we've talked about heroes and villains and whatnot in the past, but this question comes at it from a different angle in that it's a ground up question. And where I come at it come to it first is the fact that what is scary, bad to one person may not be to another. So I'm not actually sure it's possible to create a universally terrifying villain. Um, Some to some people, the bad guy that I find scary might be comical, you know? So You just don't know. The second thing that I would keep in mind is the genre, because the type of story you are writing is going to also determine the type of villain you are writing. If you are writing a cozy for an audience that almost universally reads cozies, the a villain that is scary bad in one of those stories is going to be almost chaste <laughs> compared to a scary bad villain in a horror book. But a scary bad villain in a horror book might seem almost comical in psychological suspense or a thriller, just based depending on those circumstances because all of the genres they call for something different so it's it's not like you can just flat say here's how you build a build a villain from scratch because you have to know what the context is for that but with that in mind some aspects that as a whole we as humans, and not even just humans, but also some animals, find to be universally off-putting or bad. And Anna hit on that when she talks about how do you build an atmosphere of suspense, of threat, or of being unpredictable. So unpredictability is... One of the biggest things you can do to create a terrifying villain because unpredictability is innately terrifying. It's terrifying to babies. It is terrifying to children. It is terrifying to adults. It is terrifying to dogs. We, as human beings, would rather face or confront a bad person knowing that we're going to get hurt and knowing what will cause that hurt, then be around a person who is good to us 50% of the time and hurts us the other 50% if we can't tell what's going to trigger that. So unpredictability is kind of in some ways, a sign of insanity as well. It's a sign of insanity, or it can be a sign of cruelty, or path, uh, pathological path- pathology in like psychopathy and so forth. So that right there is sort of a foundation um, characteristic or trait. But you have to be careful with that because because of the flip side of it that it, that it does sometimes signal insanity and so if you're writing a story in which an insane character i don't want to say insane like as, as a bad thing some people don't always have a grasp of reality but that doesn't make them evil or bad or cruel or any of those things so it is hard to describe this in ways that um it's hard to find the right words to to describe it, but if if your story doesn't call for a villain that's losing their grip on reality, then writing a, an unpredictable character may actually not be what you need to create that terrifying villain, right? so you've you've got to keep in mind that <laughs> there is no universally terrifying villain that the genre is going to have different requests of the villain and also that your your plot and your characters are going to have their own expectations or demands as well so you know who that villain is and what she or he wants and what makes him or her bad it's going to vary immensely based on the story as well and of course the genre that that story is in so you know when you're when you're dealing with stories where the villain learns something and becomes better is this one of those stories where the villain gets killed in a spectacular act of violence is this one of those stories where the villain is beaten by the hero but they survive and come back again either in right after as a as a sequel or in a different form much further down the line is this a story where the villain turns out to not be the villainous villain and some other bad guy comes along who's even worse and then you start rooting for the villain as sort of an anti-hero? Like, all of those things are going to come into play in, in deciding how you do this from the ground up, right? So if you have, let's say, a side. Cy- Psychopathic, suburban, stay-at-home mom as your villain, she's gonna have completely different evil characteristics than a man man who's bent on world domination, right? So the first step, I guess, in building a bad guy or girl from scratch is answering all those questions for yourself. Once you know what you need, and where you go, then, of course, we do have these universal sort of traits that can be considered bad. Um, We talked about unpredictability. There's also cruelty, lack of empathy, and then there's what, I don't really know if there's a word to define this, but I call it righteous extremism, and it's this sense of or this this behavior of I'm right, you're wrong, I'm righteous and justified in committing these abhorrent acts without guilt or remorse because they, they support or they raise up these righteous beliefs that I have. Um, so maybe extremism or zealotry is a way to uh, encapsulate that, but those um, those words have religious connotations to them. I mean, they, they're neutral in that sense, but our, our impulse is to think of them in terms of religion. But there are all kinds of zealotry or extre- extremist beliefs that have nothing to do with religion. They can be political, they can be environmental, they can be social uh, in terms of status, uh, they can be economic, whatnot. So, The the point being that when somebody is zealous in their adamant belief that they are right, it sometimes can come across as being a form of insanity because they they are completely unwilling or um, capable of accepting any reason or reasoning or logic outside that belief set that can make somebody a villain if their beliefs are contrary to the needs wants desires of your hero the problem with that is that it's not universal if the <laughs> if those zealous or extremist beliefs are in line <laughs> with the person who's reading the material that, that bad guy is not going to be a bad guy. They're, they're just going to be, the way they're treated is just going to be offensive to them, to that person. So sometimes you can't just say, oh, this person is, is, is an extremist or a zealot in this way, and that makes them now a universal bad guy. It doesn't because we're all different in what our own beliefs are whatever. So, but, the, but just generally speaking, extremism and zealotry, can be a universal trigger to you recoil from that because because it is so extreme there's no room for nuance it's terrifying when you get caught up in that so those are sort of some baseline things but for me when i'm building a villain it's i don't go into it going how can i make this bad guy really bad it's more about who is my hero What are the obstacles that they're going to come and they what is something that is going to be able to throw all of those obstacles in their path? Right. Um, I think maybe one of the most terrifying villains that you can have is one who knows exactly what they're doing. And is in perfect control of their actions and knows the cost of the things that they're doing and does those things anyway to victims who have no control. It's a power dynamic thing that when a villain is able to play people and those people are trapped in those games, that's terrifying to me anyway. I, I, in, in the question, Anna asks about books that shift the point of view to the antagonist without revealing who that person is. And what do I think of that technique? And I would say it really depends. It depends on the genre. It depends on your story. It depends on how well you as an author are able to pull that off. It also depends on if it serves the story and makes it stronger than just revealing who the villain is um, and whether there's other ways to show the villain without having to do it that way. So it, it it can be clever. It can also be confusing. It can also be too clever for its own good where it feels like a... Um, the reader's going to feel like you're just toying with them and that it's just a a technique instead of actually organic to the story. So that is going to be entirely up to the skill of the author. Um, I think we talked about that in a recent episode where I I mentioned uh, C.A. Newsom that she does that in her uh, Shot in the Bark book, and she does it very well. But I don't, I've never personally felt a need to do that myself in any of my stories because that's, I write them differently and I'm not writing uh, sort of that cozy, they're not cozies, but that type of uh, less violent mystery. Um, I'm writing thrillers and they're already very complex and very confusing as they are. So to add that added point of view where you don't know who the person is is just would just throw the story into chaos because the readers need some kind of anchor to to know what's going on
0: yeah so let me let me jump in here really quickly uh just for anna if she's looking for examples of this particular thing in like a really baddie bad guy thing john sanford used to do this in the very early lucas davenport books um so any of like the first three or four maybe the first Seven or eight i'm not sure Lucas Davenport books um that was a technique that he used, and it was kind of fun as a reader to try and figure out who the bad guy was by reading the thoughts of the bad guy um and down the line, hoping that there were clues there, and there never were at least there were never clues that I could figure out for who the bad guy was but that's a that's a sort of a classic example of of someone doing that, and he got away from it after the first several books and I don't think he ever went back to it.
1: Thank you. That's perfect. I'm not well read enough to draw lots of examples. So I really appreciate that. The, um, the question. And I also asked about when you have little vignettes that show the, the bad guy doing something horrible. And she says that she thinks it's often cheap and trivial. And I would agree with that. I've seen it done a few times. I, I guess it's going to sound so bad of me to say. I feel guilty anytime I say something that sounds like I'm saying something negative about another author or their work. They don't deserve that. There's obviously a reason why they did whatever it is they did. So it feels bad to criticize it. I can only say that for me, as an author and as a reader, I've always felt that scenes that exist simply for the sake of showing something bad that the bad guy did to establish that they're the bad guy. I've always found them cheap and um, just unnecessary. And the reason for that is because every scene needs a purpose. Everything has to belong for a reason. And If you have to create a scene just to show that the bad guy is a bad guy, that right there in my mind should be an immediate question of how tight your story really is, how bad your bad guy really is. And if you're just using gore or violence uh, gratuitously, Uh, I am very much opposed to gratuitous violence. My books are violent, without a doubt. And I, I just don't, it, it has to be there for a reason. It has to serve a purpose. And so if I was going to write a scene in which I'm introducing the bad guy and I'm showing the bad guy do something horrible, that scene itself has to have a purpose beyond showing the bad guy doing something horrible. It has to somehow uh, engage the plot. In a, beyond just, hey, this bad thing happened and now it's triggering the, the detective or whatever to come and investigate, it, investigate a murder. Like, I don't need to have slasher attacks by an unnamed villain to establish the villain is bad to, just to bring in a detective. It's going to be the detective finds the body. Or somebody finds the body and, you know, we're not going to see it in action. And To me, that's just gratuitous. But if I need to show that villain in action for the sake of establishing his badness, then it's going to be in such a way that it involves the plot to where there is either dialogue or um, just something, character, something involved in that far beyond just the violence in establishing the bad guy as a bad guy, because otherwise it feels cheap. Um, I know that not everybody's going to be bothered by that, but I am because I come at it from a craft perspective and it is cheating. It's it's not, it, it's not strong writing. It's not strong storytelling. And I'm always going to want to do whatever can deepen the plot, deepen the experience and just showing gore on the page for the sake of saying, hey, this is a bad guy. It just doesn't do it. It's, it's not. So that's that's my personal view. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to feel that way. And if you don't mind that or you enjoy writing it that way, I'm not condemning you. This is only my opinion. Um, I think that when it comes down to villains, You also have what we would call evil for the sake of evil, which are like serial killers or evil versus evil out of righteousness, like moral righteousness. And then you, so like that would be like Stalin or Hitler, right? These are just horrible, horrible evil men that were convinced in the purity of their evilness. That it was right and, and necessary and good. So it's much easier to take a a bad guy, an evil man who believes he is good and make what he does interesting uh, from a from a character psychological standpoint than it is to work with someone who just kills for the sake of killing because they like it. Those are two completely separate stories, two completely uh, types of stories. So when you if if you want to just write a page turning thriller with no just just quick, easy, fast read without much depth to it, and I'm not criticizing that because. Some people just that's all that they want to read. They don't want to get into the emotions and the and the real intense make you think drama or whatever. They just want give me those quick, not deep, just turn the pages. Right. So then in that case, an evil for the sake of evil, bad guy might be your better bet. But if you're getting into, you know, the morality issues and the 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 very deep emotional uh price that the hero is going to have to pay for whatever then you're probably going to be looking more at an evil that thinks he's righteous type villain you're also you've also are are dealing with the separate issues of cardboard cardboard versus real i you know normally when you say a cardboard character everyone's like well i don't want that but if the story isn't really about the bad guy and it's more about the hero then sometimes you don't even have to really flesh out the villain you it's just a a push that is getting the rest of the story started or that brings the rest of the story back around or whatever so the 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 villain itself could be he could or she could be be horrible and doing horrible things but they're not the full focus of the story. So, in that sense, we would say that they're a little bit cardboard. And in the other, they're they are the comp- they're dominating the story, and we're getting into their psychology and understanding what's making them do the things that they do and really building that side of it up. then you've got the focus of the villain is in the story that's very, very real. So those are the two extreme opposites, and your villain might be somewhere in the middle, right? And we've talked before about how the strength of the hero is determined by the strength of the villain. So if you downplay your villain, then you are inadvertently downplaying your hero because the weaker the villain is, you don't need Superman to come in and you know, deal with a, a group of teenage boys who stole something from a convenience store, you know, the police can handle that. You, you need Superman for Lex Luthor. I mean, I, am not really into comic books, so, you know, I'm sure I just totally. Ba-
0: no, that was, that, that was really so good. My apologies. Well, well done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. But, you know, if you, if, if you have the villain just being a group of teenage, you know, jerks hanging out and smoking and breaking into things, and then you've got Superman as your hero, then he's not even really utilized in the story. It's just why, why even, right? So the, the, the villain is critical for the sake of establishing your hero as well. So that opens up another possibility of how to uh, really make your bad guy seem bad and seem real and that is by the level of fear or concern the bad guy instills in the hero, if the hero is not worried about him, the villain the the readers are not going to be worried about him uh, there's no conflict, but if the hero begins to second guess himself or herself, if he feels that he's going to lose she's going to lose maybe almost does lose at some point, then that in itself establishes the badness of the villain without having to go into a lot of great lengths to show all the gore or whatever. You can also establish the badness of your villain by the aftermath of what he's done in the lives of the people he's affected. That's True characterization that's going to bring the emotions and the pain into it, so you can have a story in which the bad guy or woman is just an everyday person who hurts people without caring about them uh, carelessly or you know maybe stole something or cheated someone and if you were to look at that in a thriller-esque point of view or a superhero point of view or a horror point of view that is not even a bad guy (laughs) that's just whatever but if you're writing a character drama then the effects of that those actions and how it it hit the lives of the people down that are affected by it down the road and that bad guy's unwillingness to relent And how that continues to affect the characters, that right there makes that person evil because of what they are doing in real time and in real ways to these other characters that you care about. So let's say, for example, just hypothetically, you're writing a historical um historical novel, maybe it's borderline historical romance, right? And in that story, there is maybe a slave owner who is brutal to his human property. And his actions have separated husbands and wives. They've taken babies away from mothers. They, they've just been horrible. And there is no remorse from that person in this story to the people in that story. That man is a villain and he is horrible and he is someone to fear, but you put him into a Superman story and he is a bug because it is not, there's no emotion there at that point. So it is the effects on the lives of the other characters in the story that often determine and show how bad that villain is. It's not that they have to be doing all these evil things. It's that they are hurting people, and you care about those people. And that's when we return back to the issue of genre and the type of story that you're writing. That's why it's so important to to have those answered before you can answer this question. So if someone were to come to me and say, all right, I'm writing this, 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 this type of story with these, these, these type of characters. How do I make that villain feel real? I can give you very concrete uh, ideas, hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) So what I'm doing right now is I'm speaking generally because I don't have those, um, those details. So with all of that in mind, how do you build a villain from scratch? I can't say how you should do it, but if, I was to break down my own process into something that would approach maybe some sort of logical linear type thinking, it would look something like this. I would be asking myself, well, what does my hero fear? What are my hero's weaknesses? What kind of character would best exploit those fears and those weaknesses? And what kind of scenario would best exploit those fears and those weaknesses? And then I would craft those villain strengths to match those heroes' fears and weaknesses. Um, but again, it would have to be genre specific. so if I'm doing it in a in an international thriller like let's say the liars the 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 Jack and Jill stories, even there, the villains and the the villains are going to be very different than a villain in a Monroe story because the jack and Jill stories i mean these are both both of these series are international thrillers, right? So you would think that the villains would probably be the same or or close to the same because we're look we we we've, we've narrowed down the genre, we've narrowed down the type of book. And yet, the Jack and Jill thrillers are very um they're very fast-paced. They're centered on the 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 drama and the conflict is centered on the the sibling rivalry and the action And the villains that are preventing them from reaching their goals are all wrapped up in this sort of world of espionage and backroom politics. There's not a lot of emotion between the villains and the quote unquote heroes. And Jack and Jill definitely need some very heavy finger quotes around the word word heroes there there's just not a lot of emotion the drama the conflict all of that in those particular books is driven between the in, in the interaction of the heroes themselves their own conflicts that's those books in the monroe stories the villains are very much a part of the emotional conflict and the drama because it is more down to earth in the sense I mean the stories themselves are over the top but they are not you know somebody built a bomb and we need to go you know find that bomb before they blow up a building type stories they are personal to Monroe the situation she finds herself in always come with a heavy personal cost there's violence but the violence also comes at a cost it's not done just to uh shoot and kill which is different in the jack and jill books they they don't feel that same remorse over it as she does and the effects of the violence or the the things that the bad guys do are also much more personal to her so those bad guys are are not just shadows in a back room somewhere they are tangible they are real they affect her and as often as not, she will kill them. Doesn't always, depends on the situation. Um, in the doll, for example, there are multiple quote-unquote villains, and one of them she empathizes with and decides to let free, knowing that he might come back and kill her again, and the other, she terminate, terminates, and then from there goes into the vessel to actively pursue another halfway around the world to get rid of him. So, but each one of them touched her in a personal way. So those types of villains are a lot more heavily drawn for character because they matter more. And each one of them is going to be a different form of scary. And it's going to be based on how much power they hold over her, how much damage they can do to her life. When it's someone who can't, hurt her or the people she loves, she's not scared of them and the readers aren't either. If that makes any sense. They they'll be angry, they'll want her to get rid of them, but they're not scared of them. And sometimes those villains are established as being villains because they hurt other people. And in that case, you want them dead, too or gone or, you know, whatever the situation may be. And and it's because of the impact that they have on the lives of people she cares about or, or on her life. So I guess ultimately what I'm saying is that whether that villain is comes across as really bad or really evil isn't about how much blood or gore shows up on the page. It's about the emotions they trigger in how they affect the other characters in the story. You can have a really bad villain who goes around killing people and you see the effects of the death, but unless you engage with a character who is personally connected by that death, a loved one, someone who has something at stake, you're not going to feel the enormity of that badness. You're only going to want it to get caught or stopped and you're going to root for the the hero to find them, arrest them, whatever. But you're not going to feel that sense of terror or that sense of horror, how horrible they are as a human being, unless there is a character in that story who is personally affected and feeling it themselves and is afraid of them or for somebody else or is being stymied from from being able to be free or whatever the situation, it has to engage an actual character that you care about for the emotional component of the evilness to hit the reader. And I think that's where I got, that's where I'm at on
0: all that. All right. Well, that was a, an exhaustive, I, I, I will say (laughs) you, you, you went into all kinds of background and then gave a lot of great examples. I took a lot of notes, so I I hope uh, listeners got a lot out of that, discussion as well. So thank you, uh, Anna, for sending in that question. We really appreciate it.
1: Yes, we do. And like I said, that was very uh, surface. If listeners want to come back with more specific questions pertaining to, if you want to come back with a question that pertains to your exact scenario, then I can give a much more specific guided answer, hopefully, fingers crossed, Um, that would help answer that question for
0: you personally. So that is it for episode 301. We thank you guys for listening and we will be back with you again next Tuesday.
1: Thanks for being here. See you next week.